This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we read Volume 1 of Karl Kautsky's The Social Revolution, entitled Reform and Revolution, in which we discuss evolutionary social science, the roots of Anglo-Saxon barbarism, la resistance of the mass strike, and just what the hell Kautsky actually believes about democracy and the state. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Grant. Grant from Red Party. How are you doing? Peter. Peter Moody, also from the Red Party. Lexi. Lexi from Red Party, appreciating the sushi Rito. And Donald. Hey, it's Donald from Communist League of Tampa. All right. So tonight we are discussing Kautsky piece titled The Social Revolution. And I think uh, Donald prepared some notes on that. So, Yeah, I can take it from here. I actually have some uh, historical background for this essay that I'm going to start with because this was written in 1902 for um, the SPD. And this is when they were undergoing um, their big struggle against Bernstein, actually. And so um, I, don't know, I found um, some stuff about it in his book, Not One Man, Not One Penny, German Social Democracy, 1863 to 1914. So like the heroic period of German social democracy, you know, it's by uh, Gary P. Steenson. And he says, <clears throat> two books came out of Kotsky's part in the revisionism debate, the very polemical Bernstein and the social democratic program and anti-critique and the social revolution. The latter was his most comprehensive discussion up to that time of the path from capitalism to socialism, and in it he forcefully reiterated his orthodox line. The Social Revolution was one of his most successful books, selling thousands of copies and going through multiple printings very quickly. The response would encourage him to believe that progress was being made against the reformers and revisionists, although he had a few illusions about the numbers of committed Marxists in the party. And... um. So this is also on the eve of the party's debate over the mass strike. And at this time, Kotsky is very united with Luxembourg, and the centrist tendency kind of develops through the mass strike debate. And has, that hasn't really happened yet. So at this time, like, Kotsky is clearly in the radical wing of the party. He defends, you know, political strikes as a, a weapon. He's definitely, um, you know, in the radical wing of the party along with Luxembourg at this point. Starts with a, a general discussion of the concept of social revolution. He makes a lot of, I don't know, I was wondering what people thought of these kind of weird um, biological metaphors he makes throughout the book. They're actually kind of clever, I think, in a lot of ways. Let me see if I can find one of them. He says, the analogy between birth and revolution, however, does not rest alone upon the suddenness of the act. If we look closer, we shall see that this sudden transformation at birth is confined wholly to functions. The organs develop slowly and must reinsert certain stages of development before the leap is possible, which suddenly gives them their new functions. If the leap takes place before a stage of development is attained, the result is not the beginning of new functions for the organs, but the cessation of all functions, the death of the new creature. So he's, he makes all these kind of weird biological metaphors to revolution and like comparing it to birth and kind of i don't know what do people think of that 
I thought I thought this entire section was extraordinarily clever and in an important way rebuts the idea that Kautsky is a vulgarizer like Lukash and Lenin consider Kautsky to be the ultimate vulgarizer in certain respects. Lenin, of course, is doing it for a different reason, for the political reason that we were discussing uh, last time when we were talking about state and revolution, where Lukash and other critical theory types say, oh, Kautsky doesn't understand dialectics. You know, he's, he's like a vulgar materialist. Well, actually, what Kautsky is doing here is demonstrating that he's not like a dumbass sociobiologist. And in fact, he thinks too well of his opponents to think that defenders of capitalism would ever get as bad enough to totally just generalize straight from biology to society, which is, you know, very charitable of him. But he would be appalled at how vulgar things have gotten today. I hate the word vulgar, but you know what I mean? And in this, he kind of goes through how you can't generalize a vision of political change straight from, like, natural selection. And even if you could, it would favor the concept of violent revolution more than it would, you know, slow and steady paced growth. Yes, and the birth metaphor, I think, is really interesting there. What he's trying to do there is to say, okay, I'll grant you the untrue fact that, okay, nature plays out in society. And then he talks about birth, there's a gradual buildup, and then a sort of wave of decisive change. Whereas sociobiologist types you were just talking about used the theory of evolution, abused the theory of evolution, really, to try to claim that social progress could only happen at a snail's pace. The whole book, in a way, is kind of Kotsky arguing against this idea that there's no qualitative great social leaps and that there's no need for a social revolution. Because he also says, since neither a railroad nor a more ministry can be channeled gradually, but only at a single stroke, embracing all of the organs simultaneously, from capitalist to socialist functions, from an organ of the capitalist to an organ of the laboring class. And this transformation is possible only to such social organs as retain a certain degree of development. And I may remark here that with the material organism, it is impossible to scientifically determine the moment when the degree of maturity is attained, which is not true of society. Yeah, and, and I think it's kind of funny that the development of theories of nat- natural selection and the, the theory of evolution uh, has actually, I think it's ultimately ended up proving Kautsky right in that, yeah. you know, at least in the, the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, the concept the concept of evolution was that it was this very kind of slow, graduated process. Um, whereas I think, was it, it was Stephen Jay Gould, I believe, that uh, at least was yes. a popularizer of the theory of punctuated equilibrium, which I think, again, basic, basically proves this concept of Yes, there is slow, gradual change in some sense under, underneath the surface, but these are these slow, gradual changes build up to more uh, more drastic or cataclysmic changes at various points. Obviously, Kautsky didn't necessarily see that coming in terms of the way evolutionary theory would develop, but I, it's one of those ironies of history, I suppose that. Even the evolutionary theory that Kautsky is using to basically put down his enemies and prove his point has ultimately, you know, 100 years later or whatever, ultimately proved him correct. And he has an excellent Marxist view of 
how class and ideology inform scientific practice. There's a little quote that I want to share. Um, Of course, I do not assert that the scientific investigators had all their theories determined by the political and social needs of the bourgeoisie. It was just the representatives of the catastrophe theories who are at the same time most reactionary and least inclined to revolutionary views. But everyone is involuntarily influenced by the mental attitude of the class amid which he lives and carries something from it into his scientific conceptions. In the case of Darwin, we know positively that his natural science hypotheses were influenced by Malthus, that decisive opponent of revolution. This is parenthetical. As we commented before, Malthus denied Say's law, one of the few. Um, Anyway, Uh, it was not wholly accidental that the theories of evolution of Darwin and Lael, parenthetical, Lael was a uh, a geologist, came from England, whose history for 250 years has shown nothing more than revolutionary beginnings, whose point the ruling class have always been able to break at the opportune moment. The point going here is that, you know, Darwin and Lael both have these gradual um, conceptions of change and there's a similar break in geology when the idea of a tectonic plate shift um, comes comes crashing through a uh, less catastrophic theory from before that mirrors the the paradigmic shift to a punctuated equilibrium, um, which is kind of like that dialectical law, uh, the transformation of quantity to quality. There, is that enough jargon for you? Not enough jargon. (laughs) Not enough jargon. Sorry about that. There's also another biological metaphor where he says, on the other hand, birth does not mark the conclusion of the development of the human organism, but rather the beginnings of a new epoch in development. You know, he says a child comes down to new relations in which new organs are created and those that previously existed are developed further in other directions. And then he says, in the same way, social revolution is not the conclusion of social development, but the beginning of a new form of development. It actually makes a really interesting point about how socialist revolution can at a single stroke transfer a factory from capitalist to social property. But... It is only gradually, through a course of slow evolution, that one may transform a factory from a place of monotonous, repulsive forced labor into an attractive spot for the joyful activity of human beings. A socialist revolution can transform the great bonanza farms into social property. But that portion of agriculture where little industry still rules, the organs of social and social disruption must first be created. That can only come as a result of slow development. And so he's saying that, you know, this is almost a false opposition that like even after there is like a breaking point in development, it's not the end of history, like some people say, it's just the beginning of history developing upon new lines. If that makes sense. Isn't that like what basically what Marx and Engels asserted? Oh yeah, I mean he's because Kukowski's doing here. He's asserting Marx and Engels orthodoxy against the revisionism of Bernstein and trying to prove that Marx and Engels haven't been disproven by recent examples. Because he continuously talks about England, and Bernstein, you know, always shows England as being like this example of how class conflict is being liquidated by the development of capitalism, and so. Basically, you know, a lot of this is Kotsky trying to explain why this is not disproven by, you know, the example of England. Yeah, there was an old Marxian line that was like, well, the higher the material foundations, the higher the level of culture. And and therefore, the highest level of class struggle is shown in this English-speaking world where um, people are totally pacified and have a complete distaste for theory. In order to deal with that kind of social reality, it's a pretty 
useful thing to be like, yeah, you know what, maybe that chauvinistic, uh, the best technology means, you know, the best uh, culture. Maybe that whole way of thinking is wrong and the English are actually bafflingly dumb, which Kautsky makes a, a big deal of saying. <laughs> yeah, Kautsky pretty much blames the English socialist for why it's so fucked up for class collaborationism. He says that the, the reason that the proletariat is so pacified in England isn't because of, you know, it's material development, but because the labor movement becomes so right-wing and bureaucratized and, you know, the union leaders just want to basically pacify the proletariat. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a labor aristocracy theory, actually, but in a more nuanced way. Just to review, like, why, why did it develop so differently in England and Germany? Like, why was many of the leaders of, like, the German workers' movement so Marxist and the English were seemingly so allergic to that at this time. If I had to guess, it would be something along the lines of there's a sort of like constitutional tradition within English political forms that made the English workers movement like orient towards petitioning the government rather than in more openly like autocratic places like it was more obviously a war and um, even the bourgeoisie had to resort to well, the bourgeoisie did cut off the head of um, Charles the first, right? Like, <laughs> so they kind of already asserted that and got their constitution very early. You see, I think a lot of it is due to British chauvinism because they had this huge empire, and there was this whole imperialist ideology that you could get workers to buy into. That basically, like, if we support the imperialist state, all the loot that we're going to get from this is going to come into our pockets, and that was a big factor, I think. Yeah, but like there there are other like imperial powers that have perfectly, you know, socialist movements going on within them. Because Germany was kind of catching up as an imperial power too, imperialism had a lot of popular support in Germany. And Kotsky was very much like the social democrats were very much part of the struggle against this up until nineteen fourteen. I don't know, maybe it's just British people are just really stupid. <laughs> There is, like, in the Marxian kind of literature, this extreme antipathy for the Anglo-Saxon barbarism, those theoryless Cretans that refuse to question, essentially, their ideology. Like, they refuse to question, like, not an ideology, like a worldview that you put on, but the kind of support for social structure that permeates your very existence all the time that you have to think your way out of consciously. It's not just going to come to you. I mean, the whole development of capitalism kind of happened in a way that it's never happened anywhere else in England, I think. England, you kind of had this situation where capitalism almost organically emerged, you know, to be used a, a loose metaphor. So obviously, it was a product of very concrete changes in social relations, but it kind of emerged in agriculture before it fully took over society, where in other societies, capitalism was basically like forced on society through the state. And so I think there's just a difference between the path of development of English capitalism and essentially all other capitalism. And I think you can actually make a similarity to American capitalism. But I almost, honestly, I'd like to hear what Peter has to say on this, about the Anglo versus you know, non-Anglo controversy. <laughs> sure. Um, the fact that the English bourgeois revolution was so much earlier does play a factor in some sense uh, in that the idea of having essentially greater political freedom as administered by the developing bourgeois state, even when you had a very limited franchise, uh, a house of lords um, on top of the 
elected House of Commons, which basically could run roughshod over it. The fact that they had this revolutionary struggle kind of isolated from the rest of Europe, to say that it's isolated from the rest of Europe, I think is a little bit of an exaggeration, because to some degree, the English Civil War is bound up with the uh, the Thirty Years' War on the continent. But the Thirty Years' War, it, at least in terms of its ideological form, was it was seen as purely a, an interreligious conflict, whereas in England, there were still heavy religious elements to it, uh, but there are stronger political dimensions, too. I, I think Lexi's point about the idea of kind of mass petitioning campaigns being seen as an effective form of political action uh, kind of is bound up with this, too, where that, that was something which was actually started by the, the levelers, for example, which were one of, one of the more radical factions within the English Civil War. So I think the fact that they were more, at least perceived to be more political outlets for the lower classes more generally, if not necessarily the working class, meant that the meant that other forms of class struggle could be could be muted uh, to a to a greater or lesser degree. Basically, the idea that there were additional safety valves, so the idea of direct confrontation, direct struggle with the state, uh, is seen as less important for in terms of actually of asserting your interests. Yeah, he has, um, reading about, he says, well, I did not expect that the Gladstonian stage would ever be transported to Germany. Still, I did hope that because of the peculiarity of English conditions, the development from capitalism to socialism might be peaceably accomplished, not through a social revolution, but by means of a series of progressive concessions by the ruling elite to the proletariat. The experience of the last two years has destroyed these hopes for England also. So Kotsky actually straight up says that, well, Marx and Engels were wrong to think that a peaceful transition to socialism was possible so yeah so i don't want to even hear that shit that a lot of people wouldn't realize about kotsky because they kind of peg him as always having thought that this kind of peaceful transition to socialism was possible but he says at one point that like that the revolution will be more like a civil war than this just big spontaneous uprising he actually kind of says um i might almost say that it'll be much less of a single uprising against the authorities than a long drawn-out civil war if one does not necessarily join to these last words, the idea of actual slaughter and battle. So he sees that as kind of this protracted conflict where, you know, it might not necessarily lead to a, a literal like war, but it will be involved by really harsh strikes and intensive struggles and whatnot. He says a lot of really interesting things around that, though. He he says that this revolution will be a lot less like a like a big popular uprising against the state and will be more like a conflict between like factions. He says that the socialist revolution will be different in this way, which I thought I thought was like a profoundly interesting thing, because even my conception of Kautsky is that he was thinking of like a sort of mass democratic upsurge. But he really does have a, a fundamental concept of a, of a proletarian faction, like winning the battle of democracy and like outflanking the other sections. Yeah, the irony is that Kotsky, prior to 1914, has some of the best criticisms of reformism, really. Whole work has just a lot of very powerful um, critiques against reformism because it shows that this idea that the working class, through its own evolutionary a project is going to outflank the capitalist class, just evolutionary, not without revolutionary struggle, is wrong because it's ignoring developments on the side of the bourgeois class and how 
you know, increased democracy, increased standards of living for proletariat can cause the bourgeoisie to embrace autocracy and push back against those, you know. And so there's there's a bad aspect of it. He even gets to the point of attacking the very idea of pacifism. He goes on to say what makes a revolution a social revolution or not a social revolution is class-related and whether an oppressed class takes power or not. He says that if you use violence as the indicator, then you're ignoring the fact that all reform also uses the violence of the state implicitly as a method in struggle. Exactly, because he says, like, yeah, if you define revolution as, like, a violent struggle, then, like, well, struggle for an eight-hour day was a violent struggle. What really makes a revolution a revolution is one class overthrowing another and implanting new social relations. I mean, it's pretty amazing that Kautsky doesn't make the smash the bourgeois state argument that Lenin assumes that he is making. Almost everything that Kautsky is saying in this points to the idea that there's a radical break. Um, It's kind of understandable that Lenin would be shocked that Kautsky ends up taking the position that he does. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed is that Kotsky never explicitly says the bourgeois state has to be smashed in here. And in State and Revolution, Lenin actually calls Kotsky out on this and says in Kotsky's great work, The Social Revolution, etc., he does not actually like explicitly say the state needs to be smashed. But there's so much that suggests that the state needs to be smashed in here. It's almost like, why is Kotsky leaving this little detail that's a really important point out? when Marx and Engels also made that point. And it's it's hard to say. It might have something to do, at least indirectly, with the fact that the, the SPD was probably still somewhat circumspect about using too harsh language about smashing the state. One of the things that uh, they were criticized for by Engels in the Erfurt program, for example, uh, was that they were very dodgy on the question of actually calling for a republic. On the one hand, that makes sense because it was illegal to do so in Imperial Germany. Coming off the years of the anti-socialist laws, they got their legality back, so they didn't necessarily want to lose it. They ultimately gave too much away for the sake of legality. And I, and I, I think Kautsky coming very close to talking about the necessity of smashing the state, but not actually getting there, I, I think is a product of that. Whether or not Kautsky really thought the state had to be smashed, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, but is. unfortunately, we know where it led. Are there any of Kautsky's like personal correspondence extant or published anywhere, uh, if not in English? Just out of curiosity, because I know there's like extensive Marx and Engels correspondence that are uh, fairly widely available. It'd be interesting to see what his like kind of you know unvarnished like private thoughts would be on the matter. My guess would be that those papers do exist in some form, but it's probably part of like the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam, for example, where a lot of these papers are kept. Uh, particularly for documents related to the Second International. But at this point, I assume that they're that they're all still in German uh, and no one's actually translated and, and bound them together because for better or for worse, Kautsky is not Marx, Kautsky is not Engels. We get a lot of interest in understanding of Marx and Engels from stuff that they corresponded with, you know, privately, like non-published materials. Like Critique of the Gotha program, for instance, wasn't published, but it has, you know, tremendous implications for their body of work and for the understanding of communism that they, you know, argued for their entire lives. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's true that, yeah, Kotsky isn't Marx and Engels, but he was the primary theorist of one of the largest mass movements that socialism ever saw. And so you would think that he should at least be kind of treated, you know, some more respect, I guess. And the Pope work. of Marxism. Yeah, he was the Pope. He was the Pope yeah, of Marxism. He was the Pope. Why doesn't yeah. he have a statue in yeah, the because of Because of his fuck-up, because he kind of fucked up in World War One and didn't take clear enough of a position against the war. It's like he lost all respect from history. The kind of ignoble failure of the SPD that he was kind of tied to. But mostly it's Lenin. I mean, so much of Lenin's best-known writings are him trashing Kautsky. So given the, you know, I think, well-deserved fame and, you know, some of, of course, you know, Lenin became this figure that was pushed uh, particularly by Stalin, you know, because, you know, he, he advanced this ideology of, like, Marxism-Leninism, so Lenin became, like, this big figure. Uh, but also, rightfully, on his own merits, Lenin was, you know, is revered in the history of the uh, communist movement. And, but because so many of his most famous writings are him just, like, shitting on Kowski and talking about how he's a Philistine and this and that, and he, he's fucking too chicken shit to get it done. You know, that's how that's, that's kind of a, for most people now, after the fact, that's like their introduction to Kautsky. Yes. Yeah, so many yeah. people just know Kautsky as the renegade, you know, the yeah. social chauvinist renegade, but they don't understand that like up to like Lenin's last days, he was still saying that, you know, how great Kautsky was when he was still a revolutionary. He even quotes Karl Kautsky and left communism and infantile disorder, which is funny. So it's, <laughs> So it's like, you know, I think a lot of what made Lenin Lenin really comes from Kotsky. And you and, and if you read Kotsky, this becomes really apparent because his work is just it's volume it's just volumes and volumes of it is not translated as well. That's another thing. There is a so, problem though, because like World War One was a huge monkey wrench that was thrown into, you know, the workers' movement. I mean, it, what happened was a catastrophe. Um and so I can understand like why you know, that big fuck up sort of looms over Kotsky's entire body of work. Yeah, but it's 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 to the point where people can't read it and appreciate it for what it is, you know? Right. It well, seems to be in the way of objectively evaluating the texts for some people. I'm all for war shaming, especially first world war shaming. But when it comes to looking at a text you have to be able to put that aside and say, okay, here's this writer at this point in their life arguing this thing rather than essentializing all Kotsky is this mass of reformism that is responsible for World War One. Well, yeah, and I think maybe some of it too comes from just how optimistic like his writing is. And it talks about, you know, there's going to be this slow tide that rises and we'll get there and it won't be as crazy as people are going to say it's going to be. And, of course, that's not what happened. Like, it went way off course. And so it's just like, in retrospect, it almost seems naive in a way. Uh, yeah, it feels yeah. like, I don't know, it's almost it, what people call teleological. But yeah, if you actually read him, there's a lot more nuance to his work. He is willing to see the setbacks and the regressions you know, that happened to the workers. And he realizes it's an uneven process, you know. There's this yeah. kind of idea of a Kotsky believing this linear evolutionist idea of progress is very much disputed by his own writings because he's arguing against that kind of, like, thought against Bernstein. It was really Bernstein who held that. But Kotsky kind of gets thrown in with Bernstein unfairly, even though him and Rosa Luxemburg, you know, blocked together in the 1806 Congress to fight Bernstein. It's a more general point about how there's a tendency that I've noticed for Marxists or maybe socialists generally 
when talking about uh, historical development to think of things too much in terms of inflexible laws um, rather than in terms of trends and tendencies. And so like it, it's, it's one of the things that leads to this ultimately this dismissal of, of Marx as being, you know, too rigidly determinist in, in, in terms of his, his view on in economic development, more of, in this case of Kautsky being too, uh, too optimistic, too perhaps rigidly determinist in terms of the, the development of the working class, of seeing everything kind of this, as people have said before, this kind of linear progression on the great chain of being, as it were. It's a pitfall that Marxists need to be aware of because we often fall into it. I don't think it's something inherent to Marxism. I don't think it's something inherent to Kautsky. Yeah, and Kautsky's certainly not the only person that's guilty of that. I mean, fucking Lenin was teleological as fuck, and there's a statue of him at the North Pole. The reason is entirely political that Kautsky was shoved aside, um, and it was for partially good reason. But like a lot of things in the communist movement, something that's you know a good reason gets shoved onto a larger debate, and then you know, for a hundred years, people forget that Kautsky came up with like 75 to 95% of what Lenin thought. Lenin was great because of his acts, not necessarily because of his theory. And, you know, even his acts are suspect. There's also a lot of confusion about how much Kautsky actually supported World War One, because people th- thought that he was like a full supporter of the war, which wasn't even true. He actually, yeah. people are like, Kautsky voted for war credits, but... Yeah, Bernstein Kautsky didn't wasn't, Kautsky didn't vote for war credits. He left the SPD and joined the independent SPD after World War One because he realized he couldn't stay in the party. I think what his position was, was that the party shouldn't split and he wanted to basically keep unity above the actual political necessities of fighting imperialism. He put party unity above that. And basically, he made this, the fatal mistake of he chose to have the masses rather than have the correct politics, I think, was his mistake. And have it both ways. It was necessary to split from the social chauvinists right in there and then because that was going to prove to the working class that they actually truly had their interests at heart, even if the working class at that moment didn't realize it. We've talked a bit hear uh, about Kautsky's uh, optimism that came up a few times. I think, though, and we can see that in this text, there's a cynicism about something that it's sort of right to be cynical about, and that's the nature of the bourgeois state. I mean, this is totally speculative, but I almost wonder if this has to do with the hesitancy to say something about smashing the state, though I would I would say Peter's reasoning probably outweighs it. He talks about how in capitalist society, revolution is fundamentally different from pre-capitalist societies because of the size of the modern state and the size of the bureaucracy that the modern state has. And so... It's just interesting to me that that did become such a decisive question in the play out of the Soviet Union, right? And we talked about this with state and revolution about specialists, um, the complexity of the bureaucracy and the specialized knowledge that is needed to keep the state running day to day. Yeah, I don't mean to imply that he was, you know, seeing the future predicting the problem before it happened. I just think it's interesting that in his text about taking over the state, he mentions it, 
whereas Lenin in State and Revolution is more inclined towards an optimism about that versus Kautsky shows a cynicism here. Lenin shows an optimism in believing that every cook can govern right away. Yeah, and that's the actual basis of the objections that Lenin doesn't really answer when making fun of Kautsky towards the end for something that, again, we might be inclined to agree with Lenin that Kautsky should be more clear about this. But Kautsky's reason for being hesitant is actually pretty good because how do we run the state? (laughs) Like, if we're going to take state power, how do we do that? We have to take seriously the functions of the state as it is. How do we get rid of it and maintain it? Because these social functions haven't broken down in a horrific social collapse yet. Do I think ultimately Kosky's answer is an answer that isn't really taken seriously enough by Marxists, which is that you have to transform the division of labor in society to make it so that, you know, people can govern themselves. You have to elevate the intellectual level of the proletariat to, you know, let that kind of level of um, self-governance work. And that has to be done through, you know, participating in politics and, and building political institutions. And so he doesn't have this kind of anarchist um, utopianism that almost creaks out of Lenin, where, you know, you can just like the masses will rush into, you know, into battle and be ready for, you know, governance right then because they'll just learn it as they do it. And I think there's some truth to that. But at the same time, there are there is a real social division of labor in society where specialists hold power, not just because they're, you know, bosses, but because they actually have intellectual knowledge that's necessary for to keep things running. And the whole kind of anarchist idea that we can just wipe it all away and do it ourselves better is, you know, it's just ridiculous because these people have the skills to run things and we don't have those skills. And as long as they hold those skills and the way that we do things is the same, you know, it's going to be that problem. If the masses can't subordinate those sections to their will, then how is the proletariat ever supposed to take power? Well, that's not the question. I think you have to be able to subordinate those aspects to their will, but the proletariat has to learn how to do that in its own party with its own party bureaucrats, if that makes sense. I think the struggle against party bureaucracy from the rank and file is actually part of where the proletariat learns to struggle for socialism. So presumably, like when they capture the power of the state, they would just apply the, I guess, internal party democracy that was developed in the course of struggle to the state generally. Uh, yeah, this is, yeah, I kind of see it as like almost like the proletarian party is almost like a state within a state, but it's like a proletarian state within the state. And when it comes to power, it kind of basically becomes a ruling body, but that body is already a democratic mass body, basically. And the party could maybe even dissolve itself and just have different like factions like working within assemblies and whatnot. So I kind of see like the actual methods of workers' democracy or whatever you want to call it you know, revolutionary democracy that we need have to be kind of worked out by the proletariat in the process of struggle, I think. And we have to learn from that in order to figure out how to subordinate the bureaucrats while we abolish them by abolishing the vision of labor that gives rise to them. So this is, this is, puts us in a hard position because, I mean, you know, parole background, whatever, we're still, we're, we're a bunch of weirdos because we're like huddled over ancient texts and doing commentary. People like us tend to try to force a party into being and then try to force um, there to be some kind of 
institutional structure, whether it's a consciously democratic one or it's one that is just as or less democratic than the general social governmental structure is already. It's hard to create mass democracy where it doesn't exist as an act of political will. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most salient points about the the idea of social democracy as being the, the fusion of socialist theory with the workers' movement. It's in the workers' movement of the working class struggling for its own interests where it actually learns these lessons. And while socialist intellectuals, to which all of us probably are to a greater or less degree, might play useful roles in that, we can't do everything. Our position vis-a-vis the broader workers' movement kind of inherently means we can't do everything. Another part I wanted to bring up was already talks about general strikes, because I thought that was just funny given the kind of um, popularity of the slogan lately in the anti-Trump movement or whatever you want to call it. It's not really a movement. It's just kind of a feeling, I guess, that people have. It's it's, it's a resistance. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm kind of making fun of is the idea that there's this actual resistance against Trump. Because obviously there there is obviously mass public intent, but it's not an organized resistance. But think about the the language. It's the resistance. It's uh, I mean, it sounds like, you know, we're in Vichy occupied France. Yeah, it makes me think of that South Park bit where they like had like La Resistance like drawn on the flag or whatever. And remember who became in charge after Vichy France? Charles de Gaulle. Till only the righteous stand. You see the distant flames, they bellow in the night. You fight in all our names for what we know is right. And when you all get shot and cannot carry on, though you die, la resistance lives on. You may stand in a head with a dagger or a sword. You may be burned to death or skinned alive or worse. But when they torture you, you will not feel the need to run for, though you die, la resistance lives on. Anyway, he's talking about the need for political strikes, which is actually funny because I was looking at Stalin's foundation of Leninism, and he actually accuses, like, Kotsky and the Second International being against, like, the mass strike, which is weird because Kotsky defends it as necessary for, like, winning political results in combination with parliamentary action. Yeah, but no one reads Kautsky, so they yeah, were not. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I just can't expect Stalin to be smart enough to read Kautsky, but um, he says... Well, to be fair, he did spend a lot of his time in the remote prisons or whatever. It's probably tough to get the freshest literature out from Germany there, way back there. But Stalin did, like, read and write a lot, you know. He, he was not, um, you know, an uneducated person. But anyway, on to the quote... He says, naturally, I'm not using the idea of a general strike in the sense that the anarchists and the French trade unionists use the word, which you'd be talking about, like the syndicalists and the CGT. To these latter, the political and especially the parliamentary activity of the proletariat is to be supplemented by the strike and it has become a means to throw the social order overboard. This is foolish. That is foolish. A general strike in the sense that all the laborers of the country at a given sign shall lay down their labor presupposes a unanimity and organization of the laborers, which is scarcely possible in present society, and which, if it were at once attained, it would be so irresistible that no general strike would be necessary. Such a strike would, however, at once render impossible the existence, not simply of existing society, but all existence, and that the proletariat's long before that of the capitalist, and must consequently collapse uselessly at just the moment when its revolutionary virtue began to develop. And I think that point is just saying, if you actually had a general strike, 
the ruling class would be able to survive and like it has food and has stuff and the working class would be like divided against itself because they won't have access to the shit they need. So it's just basically saying like, listen, if you actually got the entire proletariat so organized that you could all go on strike at the same time, like you should have already had an insurrection by then because like, you know, that's a really high level of organization and class consciousness. Well, practically, it would trigger an insurrection, too, because they'd have to expropriate resources in order to maintain the strike. So what's interesting about that is that he generalizes that to a theory of economic collapse. If I could add to his generalization, I would also add ecological collapse as well. The ruling class would take advantage of it better than you. And if you already out-organize the ruling class, then what the fuck are you doing? Let's get it over with. Let's go. Yeah, I think that whole issue really emphasizes the need to take power in a political sense and not just a workers' management sense. Yeah, because it's almost like the whole syndicalist idea is kind of a way to circumvent political power by just directly taking the factories through a strike action. And it's obviously just not how you actually transition to socialism and deal with the problems of actually running society and having a new polity. I will say that for any revolutionary movement, some type of syndicalism is necessary. And I don't mean syndicalism, the whole body of thought, but learning to govern society a lot of that has to do with some form of workers' management over industry. I think like syndicalism plus party organization is actually a good thing. Because syndicalism is really just militant trade unionism. It's industrially based and is very much against corporatist arrangements with the employers, which is the kind of unionism that I think communists should fight for. So I don't think syndicalism is bad, except as an ideology where it rejects party action and political organization and has this really economistic, like direct action, general strike vision that just is ridiculous. Which that's a stereotype of the IWW, which interestingly enough, isn't actually like that, like officially, like officially they have like they're a pretty open organization. Oh, yeah. Um, Like the actual IWW in living history was very like multi-tendency it had they had socialist party candidates come and speak at their union halls they had anarchists but they also had straight marxists they had capital reading groups and they were a multi-tendency organization and did not have one exact position on political organization i think the reason why they kind of had this anti-political aspect a lot of it had to do with daniel de leon wanting to basically control them and some of the associated with political parties with like these outside bodies that wanted to control the unions and take all their independence away. Whereas I think think the union should be independent from the party, actually. A lot of that probably developed with uh, the overtures that the Comintern made to the IWW in the 20s and their strong push towards articulating various revolutionary trade unions together into the Red Labor Union International. Uh, Because you kind of see a similar thing in Spain where... They, they tried to get the CNT on board, but a lot of the CNT leaders ultimately, they ultimately rejected this idea of being controlled by what they saw as, as an outside force. Uh, in this case, the Comintern, or rather Profintern leadership in uh, Moscow. But in Spain, it's somewhat more interesting because the question of political action ended up coming up in a number of different elements uh, in a number of different cases. Like there was actually a basically a pro-political split from the CNT uh, in the early 30s 
which actually tried to like organize itself as explicitly as a political party rather than as a yeah i heard it was like called like libertarian impossibilist or something like that is what they called themselves yeah libertarian possibilism the syndicalist party i keep finding myself in this space where after kind of identifying the lasallian state ish problems of the social democratic like reformists and like leninist tradition even down to kautsky like throughout the 20th century there's this very endlessly creative space of anarchists kind of realizing that they have to become marxists of a broad stripe taking up this like political task and trying to work out what political organization should be uh, when you don't want to have to do it it's it's like an endlessly creative you know strand of heterodox traditions that are really compatible with the best of lenin and kautsky before they get really codified into like status doctrines of one kind or another. A lot of um, anarchists kind of think that Marx is Bernstein and think that Lenin is Blanky. Like <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they don't actually read the writings of these people and do a more nuanced like look into the history. But yeah, could be one over to our side. I think if we just prove to them that we are democratic and we do want, you know, real workers, you know, power and whatnot, I think yeah. they would, it's fine, but it's, you know, your ideological label is not as important as, you know, the actual like, concrete tasks that need to be taken care of. Yeah, I mean, Marxists aren't that much better at reading other tendencies. I mean, again, they think uh, Kautsky is Bernstein. They probably think uh, Panikoic is, you know, Kamat or something. Yeah, they see Panikoic is basically just an anarcho-syndicalist. And I mean, there is this kind of like weird fusion between syndicalism and Marxism. That happens with kind of like, that is kind of like council communism that happens. This kind of anti-political strain in Marxism that you see in a lot of the left communists. That's really just you know vulgar economism, but glorified. Just this idea that like Kotsky's this bad guy who's evil and like basically because he wants political action and parliamentarism and he's for a gradualist approach to revolution. Basically, like he's for revolution, but he thinks that it's like a gradual buildup instead of just like this spontaneous thing that breaks out during crisis. You know, they don't like that. They think that's you know just not kosher there are two kinds of these like uh libertarian marxists if you will like anti-state kind of marxists there are those kind of betrayal types you know which is a common trait for a lot of different kinds of marxists there's a lot of trotskyists that think in terms of betrayal a lot of maoists and anti-revisionists that think in terms of betrayal but then there's also more interesting kind of more structuralist anti-state marxism that is looking at the problems of managing a complex society and especially a capitalist society and how that tends to generate an authoritarian structure and how capitalist value production can hijack so many different kinds of organizational forms. That stuff's very important for us to take a look at because once you get caught in the thrall of not just, you know, value as a ghostly form, but, you know, an overall capital state formulation. Once you're caught in the logic of that, once you've been voted into the executive as Syriza, you know, there is a certain sort of structural logic that you will execute and you will betray. Yeah. And I think Kotsky understands that though. He understands that you can't run the bourgeois government and kind of just slowly create socialism by slowly taking over the bourgeois government. 
And the birth metaphor, it does seem that he does understand that. It's just like a mystery reading Kautsky. Does he break? Is there a break that Lenin is pointing out? Is that Was that there all along? Or does he understand it as this work would imply? <laughs> well, I mean, right in this quote, he says, there are some politicians who assert that only despotic class rule necessitates revolution, that revolution is rendered superfluous by democracy. It is claimed that we have today sufficient democracy in all civilized countries to make possible peaceful revolutionless development. Above all, it is possible to found cooperatives for consumption, whose extension will introduce production for use, and slowly but surely drive out capitalist production out of a one spirit, out of a kind of like, you know, the whole cooperative, Richard Wolf type thing. Most important of all, it is possible to organize unions that still eventually limit the power of capitalists in his business until constitutionalism sells to plant absolutism in the factory, and thus the way will be prepared for slow transition to a republicanized factory. So it's kind of like this, I don't know, almost like a gradualist syndicalist idea that like we just need unions to take over the economy, kind of. And then he says, like, uh, still further is the socialists who think that they can penetrate the municipal councils, influencing public labor laws and the laboring class, extend the circle of municipal activities, and by continuous extension of the circle in municipal production, narrow the field of private production. And that's almost like book chinism in a way, that idea. And he says, this is just a really attractive picture that they've painted. But in the end, it's just this kind of picture that's painted that's only looking at the growing strength of the proletariat and not looking at how you know, democracy itself is something that's, it's not just this constant thing, but it's the shape is always shifting and changing as it needs to, according to the fight of the proletariat. Yeah, I mean, nothing about that tells me that he understands that there needs to be a smashing of the bourgeois state. That's all compatible with the idea that the proletariat can get voted in they have, you know, the majority in the bourgeois state, and so they can issue a flurry of executive orders, and, you know, wow, they have a supermajority in Congress, so they can get through all the legislation they want. That theory of revolution where it's the, the transition from one class having power to the other class having power, not, you know, really looking at the state form. I mean, that's that's a compatible reading of, of this book, as good as it is. Yeah, um, I think it is possible to, you know, kind of ignore the whole problem of bureaucracy, I think, with Kosky and just say, well, the bureaucracy isn't really a problem. It's not really a problem with the state bureaucracy. It's really the um, executive function of the state that's bad, you know. And I guess the, the accusation of, against Kosky is that he kind of just saw the smashing of the state, the bourgeois parliament becoming dominated by the workers party and then smashing the bureaucracy of the state and basically just the parliament would replace the state and so he kind of saw nothing wrong with parliaments as they exist i guess is the the critique i would say in the section on democracy though most of his careful use of the word parliamentarianism in that section is to decry the parliamentarianism of the liberals and he really does seem to believe that without revolutionary self-activity of some kind from the proletariat, that parliamentarianism is completely teethless. There might be something between the lines here that does look at that because of how heavy his emphasis in the section on democracy is that parliamentarianism strategy to be accompanied by revolutionary tactics of some kind. 
Yeah, he kind of describes the parliamentary struggle and the trade union struggle, the kind of, you know, syndicalist struggle or whatever, as both like they should both work together and feed off of each other, basically, that rather than kind of prioritizing one, they should be seen as like complementing each other. So as you win more support from the workers and the trade unions and as they become more militant for your trade union struggles, you can get more parliamentary support and then you can use that to pass laws that can allow the unions to have more power and it's like a feedback loop, I guess, is kind of what Koski is arguing. Yeah. It's just interesting to me, though, that he does get to the point where he's so critical of Parliament that he has to clarify by saying, quote, I do not wish to be understood as holding democracy superfluous or to take the position that cooperatives, unions, the entrance of social democracy into municipalities and parliaments or the attainment of single reforms is worthless. Nothing would be more incorrect. On the contrary, all these are of incalculable value to the proletariat. They are only insignificant as means to avoid a revolution. He does not mean to say that democracy isn't important. You know, he, he, what does he call it? Like the life and air of the proletariat. Like he makes another biological metaphor that it's like to exist as a living thing, the proletariat needs to have democracy. So am, I'm to understand that democracy and parliamentarism are equivalent in uh, Kowski's mind. Is, is, mean, is that, is that correct? That parliamentarism is a limited form of democracy. I think he sees parliaments existing in capitalism. It's, it's a limited form of democracy that's corrupted by the bourgeois. And if it gets too much power, it starts to become corrupted basically. And I love his theory of decadence. Incredible. He blames it entirely on like small property holders. <laughs> Just to interject uh, with respect to what you asked, I will say that in in the part of the text I quoted, he identifies democracy and the entrance of social democracy into municipalities and parliaments as separate strategies or concepts. Yeah, I did notice that. Basically saying that you can't take over these things by gradually winning more positions, but basically... This is just a part of organizing the proletariat of the fight and that you're not going to take over the state by gradually taking over municipalities and parliamentary bodies. And whether he held to that position in his whole life, obviously he didn't. So it's important to realize this is 1902. This is when Kotsky was, you know, trying to defend the revolutionary line. So, it, OK, it's clear that he has some kind of difference from later on. But what is his vision here? If, you know, if he could be off the record and he was sure that the, you know, the censors wouldn't come get him, would he say in 1902, yes, comrade, my goal is to smash the state? As Ingalls said, the thing must be smashed. You know what I mean? Like, is, is that um, really what he means? Or is there still some distance there? Because even though it's not the same as the later Kautsky, this is the problem. It's it's too easy to collapse him as Lenin does and say, ah, you always thought this Kautsky, damn you, because it doesn't appear that he's on Marx and Engels side about smashing the bourgeois state necessarily from what we're reading, yeah. but My there is something different from the where he ends up. I think there's something different. And this is what I think Kautsky believes. He thinks that basically the parliament 
needs to become the state and the parliament needs to be reformed so that the delegates are recallable. And so he basically has a vision of kind of non-reformist reforms, maybe where he sees basically the proletariat will get a majority in parliament and then through its you know executive orders that will basically turn parliament into a proletarian body and then do away with the bureaucratic militarist aspects of the state and replace it with a people's militia and bureaucrats under supervision. And I think his idea of revolution is basically the proletariat will build up strength in parliament and trade unions eventually until the point where the bourgeoisie issues a kind of slaveholders rebellion and they basically duke it out in a civil war. And I think that's probably what Kosky would say privately. But I think he might be ambivalent about saying smashing the state because he seems to think that aspects of the state are useful and should be kept, like parliament. But I don't know. Does anyone else have an opinion on that? I think you're probably right, Donald. But I think this also gets back into the problem of Kautsky. If we're taking Kautsky to be a theorizer and a popularizer for the strategy of the SPD as it existed at the time, the strategic conception that, that he's running with runs up against the problem that in order to effectively transform the parliament, to transform the Reichstag, basically, into a proletarian body. That means overthrowing the Wilhelmine monarchy. That means you know, overthrowing the German empire. It means proclaiming a republic. And that, as, as I mentioned before, is at the time that Kalki is writing is illegal. It is illegal to come out and explicitly say that. So he's hedging his bets. And it's completely understandable why he's hedging his bets, but the fact that he can't be explicit it allows for these questions to come back and for the ideas of social revolution becoming, I guess, a more ameliorative process vis-a-vis state power. It creates wiggle room for that to come in. That, I think, is, is Kautsky's most serious weakness. Do you think it's just a matter of censorship? Like, do you think it's just a matter of he can't say it? He can't say that he agrees with Engels, the thing must be smashed? Ultimately, I don't know. I'll tell you what. He and Ingalls were drinking buddies. So I got to imagine, like, you know, if Ingalls was kind of like his prime tutor back in the day, I feel like on some level, some of that had to have rubbed off, right? I mean, I don't know. This is where I feel like we got to get the letters to, like, find out, like, what the, pri- what, yeah, what that's the private correspondence I was. I think we really don't know, but I think there's a lot of clues that are saying yes, because what the airfare program demands. I think the minimum program does basically necessitate smashing the state. Like, I don't think you're going to get a people's militia within the bourgeois state. Like, that's just not going to happen. I don't think the Kaiser is going to go around, like, handing workers uh, <laughs> rifles and uh, distributing them to you know, a well-regulated militia. Yeah, I think that he does want to, but I don't know. I think that he has an understanding of what it means, at least, and he does believe in it. And I think he is maybe held back by the censorship. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind here. I think uh, a lot of stuff, you know, the SPD was afraid to even publish because they were too afraid that it would be, you know, reason for accusations of treason. And, you know, and which goes to kind of prove the point about the importance of democracy and free speech for the proletariat. <laughs> I was just looking through the democracy section again uh, because I had done that quote. And I think that the last paragraph of it does sort of really tie into what we're talking about in an interesting way, because he says 
that once uh, the proletariat gains political power, it can apply that in no other way than to the abolition of the capitalist system. So long as this has not yet happened, the battle between the two classes will not and cannot come to an end. Social peace inside of the capitalist system is a utopia. No less of a utopia is the imperceptible growth of capitalism into socialism. But still, it's not there. That's the thing. I mean, we'd probably just end up circling back to that thing, you know, that it's between the lines to the point that you can't say definitively that it's there. So maybe you could have disguised it like one of like those mad magazine fold ins. Like, kill the Kaiser, kill the. If you read <laughs> the first letter of each line of every word in social revolution, it says stuff about smashing the state. Join us in a couple weeks for another Karl Kautsky mystery as we read the second volume of The Social Revolution, entitled On the Day After the Social Revolution. We were thinking about stopping the news roundups since we're all completely unqualified for them, but listener feedback tells us we should keep doing them, so I guess we will. Hey, we listened to our listener feedback. Shoot us a line at swampsidechats at gmail.com. You could send us a Facebook message or comment on SoundCloud. We read all that stuff, you know, even if we're really lazy about responding to it. Hey, we have the right to be lazy. You could subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, like us on Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes if you're really feeling adventurous. Well, I mean, that's about it. Until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.